Music Biz Weekly Podcast. This week, we are taken inside the vault mm. as to how reissues and anthologies are put together. How do you find, how do you dig through the archives? Where do you find this rare material? This is a fascinating discussion as to how releases are made. Welcome to the Music Biz Weekly Podcast, founded in 2011 and with over 500 weekly episodes, where Michael Brandvold and Jay Gilbert, two longtime music industry pros, discuss the very latest trends, tools, and tactics that you need to succeed in this Build new- a stunning band website in minutes with Bandzoogle. Go to Bandzoogle.com to start your free 30-day trial and use the promo code MUSICBIZWEEKLY to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Music Biz Weekly Podcast. We took last week off. Jay and I each kind of had crazy, hectic that. client that schedules. Like once a year. Yeah. I was I was on the road with Wasp. I mean, I'll yeah. take that as a good excuse to not record. Yeah. Um, but this week we 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 go literally in the vault. Mm-hmm. We we have a guest who who puts together reissues and anthologies, and he talks about the vault and tracking down material and going through archives. But yeah. before we get to this week's interview. Uh, quick shout out and thank you to Bruce and everybody at Hypebot and Bands in Town for all you do to support the Music Biz Weekly podcast. And of course, today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Bandzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Bandzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a stunning website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including dozens of fully customizable templates, Tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands and Town, and more, so you can easily add content from your other online profiles, and of course, amazing live tech support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Um, they've also just added custom landing pages for Mm -hmm. musicians. Now you can easily create your own music landing pages using preset page templates and built-in funnel tools that will help you get your pages up and running and added to your music marketing campaigns within minutes. Plans at Bandzoogle start at just $8.29 a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. Music Biz Weekly Podcast listeners, head over to bandzoogle.com, sign up, try it for free for 30 days. Use the promo code MUSICBIZWEEKLY, all one word, and you'll get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MUSICBIZWEEKLY. And of course, discmakers.com, we know it's a digital world. There's still an important role for physical media for today's musicians, digital royalty payments can be so small that selling products like CD, vinyl, and t-shirts online and at gigs has become such an important income generator. For every CD you sell at a gig, you might need roughly 3,000 streams to make the same amount of money, and that's a lot of streams. Our friends at Disc Makers are the place to go for your discs and other physical media, including vinyl, USB drives, and even t-shirts. So we got an offer for everybody that listens to the Music Biz Weekly podcast. Head over to discmakers.com. Place an order for 100 or more CDs, and when you check out, use the promo code FREEBIZ, and you'll save up to $150 in shipping costs. So, Jay, who's bringing us into the vault today? 
Andrew Sandoval, he's a Grammy-nominated reissue producer, and he's put together some amazing sets. You know, we're going to talk about the Kinks and and the the Monkeys just uh, came out, but he's done sets for the Bee Gees, Elvis Costello, Elton John, Big Star, Everly Brothers, and many many more. Uh, fascinating conversation. Yeah, if 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 you're just even a fan, wondering how these reissues and anthologies are put together. You want to listen because he gives you a good idea that it's not as easy as you might think. I mean, he actually says he's worked on projects that have taken him 10 years to finally get released. It takes that long to track down, get the approvals, get everybody on board. Um, This is a great conversation. If you are interested, like Jay, as you said, how the sausage is made. Here it is. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow and rate us on Spotify. Subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. We appreciate your support. Today we're joined by Andrew Sandoval. He's a Grammy-nominated reissue producer behind some iconic uh, sets, which we'll dig into. Andrew, it's it's such a pleasure to talk to you today. Well, it's so nice to be with you guys today. Um, I've been looking into your past episodes, and uh, I'm excited to be a part of the uh, of the journey you guys are taking online. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, yeah. it's it's such a pleasure. I mean, I, I'm looking at some of the sets you produce, and they're like some of my favorite artists of all time. You know, the Bee Gees, Elvis Costello, Elton John, Big Star, Monkeys, Everly Brothers, Beach Boys. It goes on and on and on. Um, but what I kind of like to focus on, at least initially, is this kink set uh, that you that you put together. Um it first of all, it's stunning. But what really grabs me is you can find music today, whether it's on you know uh, YouTube or on DSPs or whatever. But that's not a great experience. What's a great experience is when you get somebody to curate all of this with great images and liner notes, and then it becomes this thing. And I think that's what you've done with a kink. So I wanted to ask you first off how did you put this thing together? You know, did you have to like search for the original multi-tracks? Did you have to bake any tapes? Did you have to go through archives to find Im- I mean, what's that process like of putting together this beast? What What's the process like from the moment you are like officially contracted, go do this. How do you start this whole, <laughs> this whole journey? Well, it usually starts the track list and, um, and that, you know, there's obviously the obvious, the obvious things that you would have in the track list, which would be the, you know, whatever album it's based off. If it's an anthology, then you're looking at the best cuts off of albums and singles and B-sides and 12 inches and unreleased stuff. But you start with the album and then I basically am racking my brain for everything I know that's out there that isn't on the album. And that would be, you know, single mixes, mono mixes, stuff done for the BBC, um, acetates. I get a lot of stuff on acetates, which are, like for people who don't know what those are in the 50s and 60s and 70s and even up to the 80s before uh reel to reel tapes were really prevalent and or even cassettes before people had them they would make these lacquers these acetates they'd basically do a rough mix and then cut it to a vinyl disc uh or a, a sort of an acetate disc rather with metal and um it it was sort of like a temporary like a polaroid like if you if you do a photo session they take a polaroid and it's a snapshot of where things are at that moment and a lot of times especially in the 1960s where they have like four tracks they're working with they'll race over a track like oh i i didn't like that vocal we'll redo it so the acetate may have the only recording of that particular thing or that particular mix and um unfortunately they sort of 
they degrade with each play, but they're, they are out there. So you're, you're searching for some of those. You're, you know, um, Ray, uh, Ray Davies of the Kings has a enormous archive of stuff. And over the years, I've gotten to know about some of the stuff he has, and I'm still learning about a lot of other things because um, the Kinks records are sort of made in a very closed environment. Uh, they, they weren't, uh, they, they were a family band and really in their own community. So a lot of the details of how they did their things, it's not like the Beach Boys where the records were contracted with musicians from the musicians union. And, you know, they're very public. The, the kinks did so much in private and especially getting into this era um, that we're getting into now with Muswell Hillbillies and everybody's in showbiz. They're working in a studio called Morgan studios. Previously they had been working at pie studios, which was the label they were on and that they'd done from 64 to about 69 worked at pie. Uh, Morgan was an independent studio and that's where all the multi-tracks are from and all the mixes are from, from this era. Um, actually, a lot of the work on this set was done in England by Ray and his engineer, Matt, at a studio called Conk, which they opened in 1973, just after Everybody's in Showbiz came out. And that's especially when things become even more um, of an enigma of, of when and how they did things. But over the years, I visited there and certainly spoken with Ray. And so what I do at the outset is I make a track list and I present uh, a track list, but Oftentimes, I don't like to just say, uh, here's a track list of titles and things. I like to present music, too. So I put together a mock-up CD of things or a mock-up digital file, as it were, yeah. whatever works for the artist. And then they have some time to think about what it is. Um, with this particular process, um, there were a few things I presented that were rough mixes that had very low vocals. So we used uh, demixing, which is now a very popular Thing, but just to bring up the vocals so that they were more audible, they had some different lyrics and other things. And ultimately, Ray decided that he wanted to do a lot of remixing on his own stuff at Conk with Matt uh, Jagger. And that's what uh, a big chunk of the set is. And uh, and then also looking for the original master. I mean, this is a record or these two records, Mozo Hobelis and Everybody's in Showbiz, are ones I've actually had experience with reissuing before. So oftentimes I'm coming into a reissue now having been in the business about 32 years or more, maybe 33 at this point, where I've done some of these records more than once. And um, there's always the fans out there like, well, why are you doing it again? You did it once. What is, wasn't it good that time? Like, why are you making me buy this again? But the reality is over 33 years, the people who love those records, they're not supposed to buy them every time. Even though the, people like me, I buy multiple versions of things I love. But the thing is, is that as we know in the music business, over after seven years, something in catalog is kind of disappears. And now there's no real retail for it to linger at. It's not like you can go into tower and, right. you know, and it's just been sitting there for waiting for you for the day you discover it. A lot of people discovering stuff online, a lot of people discovering stuff on YouTube, on Spotify, there's still big holes in catalogs where nothing has actually been digitized or made available legally. Um, there's still lots to discover out there. And I'm still finding unreleased stuff, different people over the years. People say, oh, well, why didn't you put those tracks on the earlier one you did, you know, 10 years ago or whatever? We didn't know about some of these things. They've only just surfaced. And I'm still finding out about a lot of my favorite artists. And that's really the exciting thing is that there's still stuff that we don't know that we're still finding out about. Yeah. Andrew, well, what's 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 the reality of being able to put together a project like this? without the artist's involvement if a label just says we're just going to use our assets what we've got versus okay the kinks are going to be involved in this 
Well, the reality is much different. I mean, Ray is one of the most um, unique artists that I've ever dealt with. And, and uh, he, the music is so personal to him. It took me many years to understand because as a fan, I just want to hear everything. You know, I collect bootlegs, I collect, you know, live tapes, whatever. I just think, oh, great. Well, this is, I think this is great. But there was a certain point where he expressed to me, finally got through my thick skull was, was that these are very personal things. It's like, if you came into my room and you started pulling out these things and like, I want to see this. And I'd be like, what? I didn't give you permission to do that. But me coming in and, you know, throwing together all this unissued music is sort of a, a similar thing. Anybody who makes home demos, I mean, the thought of me ransacking their house and, and, you know, going through their old uh, Porta studio tapes or whatever they have. Um, some people would, would, love it but very few i think most artists really really don't appreciate that thing they also feel like i had the final word i put together a record start to finish an album that i liked i liked the mix and everything else unless they you know there's a few that say oh i want to remix everything or i want to redo everything but um when we don't deal with the artists um it's uh it's a di- it's a totally different experience and you know, it's it's less rich in certain respects, but it really depends on it's an artist by artist where what's left in the catalog, what's left in the vault. Some, you know, a lot of stuff, especially the 1960s stuff I deal with, a lot of stuff was tossed out in the 70s. Uh, you know, if it was on Universal to make space for other stuff. Sure. Well, that, that's yeah. kind of what I wanted to also get your feeling on, because, you know, fans have this band and bands love to feed this concept oh my god there's a giant vault and all of our golden nuggets are in this vault um what's the reality of what a record label has in and and there truly are vaults but what's yes. the reality of how much a record label might have in their vault beyond just the the master recording do they have demos do they have the outtakes do they or is that really where the artist has to come in that the artist's own personal archives have all of that other real juicy material? Well, you know, I would say like, for instance, the Warner brothers vault it was a, which I'm very familiar with for Warner music. I worked for them for a number of years. It's very thorough and has a lot of different elements, but it really depends on what they paid for and what got delivered back to them. So the, what you, the artist usually doesn't think about is, you, you know, you, you get involved in making an album and you make this record. And in the old days, it would be on a multi-track tape and now it's on a Pro Tools. But all those files and all those other things, um, what happens to them the day you finish the record? Well, you go to mastering, you, know, you get your finished reference disc and then you're happy and it gets manufactured and you have your finished records, vinyl or CDs or cassettes or whatever it is. So you don't think about the assets that you created in this whole process but there are people and certainly at warner music there were people at the vault who would call up you know ocean way or you know uh, uh cello or whatever whatever it is now and say hey um we just paid you you know uh two hundred fifty thousand dollars for these sessions of you know can we have whatever tapes are there and those those studios are usually very happy to get rid of the stuff and like yeah you know, those things are in a temporary holding room. They get moved over. Now, the thing with vaults, uh, especially with Universal, is everything is sort of switched over to Iron Mountain. Um, Iron Mountain has sold all these labels on this deal that, well, store your stuff with us 
and you'll never need to see it again. And for a lot of record executives, that's like a dream come true. Like, why would we want all these old tapes? Why do we need all this old crap? Paying all this money for storage and stuff. We don't need all that stuff until it comes time, like the artist wants something or whatever else. And then you'd say, well, like, well, they should pull the stuff and then people get through it. No, it's an Iron Mountain now. So only Iron Mountain gets to look at it. So, uh, and they'll, they have a lot of these um, vaults now have their own transfer facilities. So they'll give you a transfer. You'll say, well, I, I want to use these albums. Okay, well, we'll make you a transfer here, but you're never going to see the tape. You're never going to have the original tape to do anything with. Uh, and that's kind of where things have gone to now. The only exception now I'm finding is for vinyl, where I can talk Warners into, hey, I'm going to go do a direct analog cut from the original master directly to a lacquer for a special vinyl pressing. And so for they'll allow out a tape for that to be cut. Well, let, let me ask you, because I'm trying to, under, um, you know, if the assets at Iron Mountain are owned by the label and the label says, I want you to give me this, why would Iron Mountain say, no, 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 we'll we'll make a copy and give you a copy? Are they so are they so protective of that master on behalf of the labels? Is that what's behind that? Well, it's part it's whatever their deal is. So it's kind of like if your deal with them is like, well, we'll store all these things for, you know, pennies on the dollar to but as long as you never pull anything from us and and also if you want anything we have to bill you for got it pulling it and b we'll transfer it for you so unless and if it gets to that level unless you're a superstar artist who holds a lot of weight these days uh you know but if you're some schmo from the 60s that i love that is like my hero um then they're probably like we're not going to make some special exception for you. You know, you're what this, we're going to sell 5,000 of these records, you know, go away. Well, you know, whatever we have up is enough. And, um, and so it's constantly a fight between those two elements of things to say, well, let's figure out a way around this. Like what, what can we do with what we've got and what, how can we figure out a way to, to monetize whatever it is in the vault in a way that makes the executives happy to sign off on letting it happen. But a lot of times executives are like, you've already bored me with yeah. <laughs> multi-track and stuff. Like, I don't want to know about, it. it's like, is this thing going to sell anything? Like, exactly. You know, like I'm going to lunch now. Like just do, we just hired you to do some compilation or something. Just get out of here. So it's, that's, it's, it's, it's stuff like that, that, that drives fans crazy. They're like, why why isn't the record label as passionate about this band as we are? Well, because the, the record label might not actually be a fan of that band. It's it's an old asset, like you said, well, from 40, 50, 60 years ago. It's revenue, too. It's as, revenue. As it's a said, product. They, they, they look at it as, you know, how much revenue is this going to generate and how much are we going to have to put in it to do it? And, you know, from being at Universal for 18 years, one thing I learned is, is something, Andrew, I know that you know. And that is that I wish it was as easy as looking at a list and seeing what was at the vault, but I've gone in the vault and I know you have too. And it, not everything is archived properly. They don't, sometimes they don't even really know what they have. You can go in and find things like, you know, outtakes, B-sides, live recordings that maybe you didn't know, or even sometimes radio station performances that weren't logged properly. And for a collector, uh, a music fan like us, that's gold, you know, when you can find some things, some different versions and things like that. 
Um, talk about, you know, what happens when there's multiple labels involved? Now, the kinks may be a little bit different than some of the packages you put together, but like the kinks are on, you know, uh, Pi, Reprise, MCA, RCA, Columbia, et cetera. If you're putting together, let's say you're not putting together, you know, just certain albums, but maybe a reissue of some kind of an anthology or career spanning set. How challenging is that for you to deal with different labels who may own the repertoire? It might not be one particular label. Well, it can be challenging. And, and the specific thing you bring up, especially to do with the kinks, is that, for instance, their records came out on reprise up through 1971 from 64 to 71 here in America, and they were on Pi in the UK. And now Pi is owned by something called BMG Rights Management. Mm -hmm. And they actually own the US rights too. But Alan Klein's company, Abco, had an override manufacturing deal on all the Kinks records when he rene renegotiated their contract in 1966. So um, it gets to be so Abco's got a piece on certain records. Um, and then Reprise got delivered a bunch of tapes and BMG taking over, over Pi after it had already been uh, part of PRT and then Sanctuary and then, uh, you know, Universal and then back to BMG. The assets changed. Tapes got lost in those years that I that I'm aware of even. And so Warner's sometimes has tapes for things that they no longer have the rights to put out. And then it's getting someone there in business affairs to sign off on allowing a tape to be either transferred or copied or whatever. And there can be, you know, there's usually a good balance between all those things of people wanting to play ball. But for instance, like with the monkeys artists I've been involved with for many years, um, their records were manufactured by RCA. And uh, it, even though they weren't signed to RCA, it was a, a manufacturing distribution deal for a label called Cold Gems, which was formed by Screen Gems, a music publishing company, all very convoluted. But when the deal ended, a lot of their music ended up on a label called Bell. And then Arista took that over. It bought Bell. And then Arista was putting out the Monkees records through the 80s. And then uh, the original uh, creator of the Monkees, Bert Schneider, sued Sony Pictures because they had lost outtakes from the Easy Rider movie. And they and, and he owned those outright. Um, and as a settlement, Sony gave, Sony Pictures gave him back the Monkees catalog, which he sold to Rhino. Now, all these years later, you know, I'm trying to get all these tapes back and I'm going to Sony Music, which now owns RCA. And I've got friends there and I've later gone on to work with them. But the business affairs person says, I don't know how you should have any access to, to this. I don't see any chain of title here that says that you guys actually own any of this Monkees music that's sitting in our vaults. And so... Um, that same person sort of blocked me from getting tapes for a number of years. They weren't all the tapes. They were just some missing ones that I needed, some original masters. And ironically, that business affairs person moved over and was working at, at uh, Rhino Warners a few years later. And we had a meeting and I said, well, now you're over here. I Can I show you in, the, in your own paperwork here? how you how we own that stuff and we we ended up getting it but sometimes it takes years for people to shift out of jobs i had a guy who who ran a vault um for years that there's no tapes here there's no tapes here there's no tapes here and unfortunately he passed away from a stroke and then the person replaced him i contacted him oh yeah we have all those tapes here well what, what's your fedex number you know we'll we'll ship them out it's a multi-year process, and that's what a lot of fans don't understand. They're like, well, why did you hold this stuff back? Or why couldn't all this happen then? It's You have to be – some projects I worked on for 10 years 
um, until until the label feels comfortable putting them out, until we get the the right tracks and all that stuff. It can be a, a multi-year, multi-generational process, and um, you have to have the dedication, and you also have to be aware that you're not going to really make a lot of money. People like say, "Oh, I, I'd love to get into reissues and do the kinds of things you're things you're doing." And I said, "I don't know how you could support yourself doing that. I used to, but not anymore. Now you can just do a playlist on Spotify or license something from a, a label and put out your own." records i mean that's how you really can get started now and the, when i started there was still a big infrastructure for stuff and reissues and cd reissues in particular were a big deal andrew when when you're working on a project like you just described that might have multiple labels and multiple entities that have their fingers in the pie how often does one of those entities just roadblock the entire project and stop it and say nope we don't we don't want to be part of this we don't want to release it does that happen often not often i mean it happens occasionally um but you know for the most part now especially stuff music is so devalued compared to what it was when i started out you know even outtakes for bands and things like that almost you know people used to trade things and to be you know coveted and now it's like the second somebody gets something it's just up on youtube you know, there's no there's no yeah. hierarchy of of the value of things. And and also, I just feel like people don't really even want to pay for music. A lot of the times they're they're begrudging about it. They don't want to pay for concerts. Uh, the concerts are too expensive merchandise. It's like the all the money has sort of been drained out. And, and they um, they don't understand that artists didn't make so much money, especially with people living longer and artists living longer, which is a wonderful thing. They didn't necessarily make so much money from their hit records. It's going to last them a lifetime. Um, you know, it, they probably, you know, have a divorce. You you get sick, whatever. You know, maybe your money lasts you for a few years. Um, yeah. Those those you, royalties now have gone way down for most artists. They they're not yeah. seeing anything from streaming or any of that stuff. It's you know, it's pennies compared to what they used to get. So yeah, it's really it's really rough for the consumer who doesn't understand, and it's rough for the artist who is not do they are they going to go online and tell everybody like david crosby like you know i don't have any money i'm broke i can't tour i can't streaming is is crap because i don't make any money from it you know it's like that becomes your life then you're like lenny bruce you know fighting the courts in 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 the public theater you know yeah how involved are you in the packaging um, I, I love some of these sets that you've put together because, you know, as a photographer, I mean, some of these photographs are absolutely amazing. Um, how, how involved are you with the photography or just the packaging in general? Well, it depends on the set. With the kinks, um, those have mostly been put together in the UK. And the, I thought that the book for this, Everybody's in Showbiz, Muzzle Hillbillies, this is the sort of fourth one we've done in the series we had done lola a couple of years ago and then before that arthur and village green preservation society in these big boxes and i think this book is actually the nicest of all the ones i had very little to do with that my friend doug henman is a big kings collector and gave them a ton of great photography in there but when something like the monkeys uh is done or a lot of these box sets that i i work on i do get involved in the artwork and i'm really into the aesthetics of everything because i love records and how how they look and how they feel and you know and and the things that you can do when you go the extra mile to get some interesting things so for instance i just finished up a box set for rhino on the monkey's headquarters and um yeah just we're digging up stuff uh for that specifically with um you know unique photos that people hadn't seen and also um you know tracking down photographers 
photographers have more rights than the 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 uh, the the uh, songwriters and musicians sometimes now that the labels are more scared that they're going to be sued by photographers than they are of of uh, the artists that are on their labels so photo clearance is a big big deal um and i get into that a lot with uh with business affairs over you know an obscure group that is like on the level of you know close to robert johnson where maybe there's only two photos of some obscure group that only put out one single you know um and they're like well what if somebody sues us like your liability is pretty minimal pretty low (laughs) but it's hard you know they don't want any liability yeah because there's no there's not enough money coming in to to uh you know offset it now so jay and i are 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 big kiss fans and we we kind of hang in that kiss world and you know the universal's done a couple kiss box sets and i know that they reach out to fans in those cases like not all fans but they know there's one or two uber collector fans that have every article every pass every photo even might own you know live recordings that even the band doesn't have to to supplement the box set to fill up fill up around the music because like you said you know music has been devalued so much that you know these box sets are filled with glossy books and reprints of tour books and reprints of posters how often do you bring a fan in to help you track down stuff well fairly frequently i mean i have a pretty big network of uh friends and fans that i deal with uh, being a fan myself um but i don't uh, i don't consider myself the final word on anything like i was working on um this box at the the monkeys uh headquarters and there are a couple of guys who have started uh they started their own blog or web page and they've been working on a book over the years over 30 years we've put out all these different alternate mixes and uh you know i've remixed a lot of songs and each time there's a new package, there's an opportunity to do things a little differently. Um, but I haven't kept track of all of that, but they have. So I will go to them a lot of times and like, is this as you know, is this out or you know, have, have how is this different? Or and with this particular record, I sort of said, What do you think of these new mixes? Because we remixed, I remixed all the songs on the album for this. Um, so so I do I do go out to fans and then also uh fans for photos and fans for uh for elements i mean it's that's a wonderful thing people contacting you out of the blue and uh you never know what they have and and a lot of the times um it's great to be able to share stuff with other people you know most fans want everybody to enjoy the stuff and not just hide it all in their basement you know yeah as a fan i've contributed to you know the uh, a couple of uh box sets with you know like with jellyfish or the posies or whatever with with recordings that i had that maybe they didn't have and working at universal for so long i remember working on the motown 45 i found a guy in sweden who had bought every motown single he had every single one and of course some of those early ones weren't all picture sleeves and and things like that right but he scanned those for us for a big campaign that we did with apple back then and i just remember how fortunate we were to find that fan to have all those scans of those original 45s so i guess just to amplify what what mike was asking i mean it's i guess you can find gold out there by working with some of these fans whether it's what you mentioned photography or maybe some recordings that 
you know, you didn't know were out there. And then again, you know, scanning those 45s or original posters or, you know, fan club things. Um, I, I would imagine you, you've probably discovered some gold by reaching out to some of these folks, right? Oh, definitely. And, and now it's easier to share the stuff digitally, uh, you know, without them having to let go of it. Cause it used to be like, well, ship out all your stuff to me. Yeah, you know, exactly. I'm going to get it back. But that, that, you know, 30 years ago when I started, that's what happened. That's what had to be uh, done. But the, the most unique thing that happened to me in the last few years with that was that I, yeah. uh, I republished a book I did on the monkeys. Uh, I did a my own version of it and my own imprint, uh, Beatland Books. Uh, so I, I expanded the book from about 200 and something pages to 700, a day-by-day oh, wow. book featuring every recording session and every live date, every radio appearance, every everything from 1942 to 1970. What's that and called? It's called The Monkeys Day-by-Day Story. Um, it sounds and, like that what Mark Lewison did for the Beatles, right? Where you yeah, really was, do the deep dive into... Yeah, it was inspired by that. It's now sold out. I'm looking at maybe doing another printing of the flexi bound version, but the it was done as a limited edition direct to consumer thing. It worked really well for me. Uh, but what was so unique about the experience was I put out the word because um, online, you know, people on eBay sell like call sheets and stuff. And that says what they were doing filming on that one day. And so I have a few of those. So I, I said, hey, I'm looking for any interesting photos, you know, specific things, call sheets. And somebody wrote to me who's a, a fan and said, I have something I bought off eBay and it's um it's a court deposition. And I said, oh, okay. Well, he goes, well, I, I don't know. It's really long. And, um, you know, it's, it's too much to scan. And I said, well, don't scan it. I mean, you know, it's illegal legal papers. What you know, I'm not sure what I'm gonna do with it. Why don't you use your phone and just take a few photos of the first few pages? I can look at them and you know, save you some trouble. I really appreciate you reaching out. So he's like, Oh, well, that was easy. So I just send it all to you. So I started reading this deposition and it was from Davy Jones in uh May of 1967 when the monkeys were at their very peak of popularity and it was all about their lawsuit, uh, or the lawsuit, not them, but Columbia Pictures versus uh, Don Kirshner, who was the music coordinator controlling and and crafting all their music and it basically was this unfiltered under oath view of everything all the players in their story and it totally rewrote what i knew about the monkey's history that's amazing so i so i showed uh something to another fan researcher friend of mine and she said well there's the case number write to the courts and find out uh if they have anything so i wrote public record southern district of new york uh, where it was filed and this is um, in uh, late 2019, I got this. And um, they wrote back to me in early 2020 and they said, yeah, we have two full boxes of stuff, but it's too much to wow. scan. You can pay somebody, hire them to maybe scan uh, stuff. But uh, you know, there are rules. Basically, you come in on your own. You can use a phone to photograph things. But, you know, all your possessions have to be locked away. You can't, you know, you're going to be under supervision, all that stuff. So I was thinking, well, I'm really excited and interested in this. I decided to fly out and was basically like two weeks before lockdown. I flew to New York City, didn't know there was going to be lockdown. And I sat, I spent three days and I photographed over 2000 pages of documents relating to the monkeys that I had no clue about before, all fascinating information. And then during lockdown, I rewrote my book. And instead of just revising it, I completely rewrote it because it it changed everything. So wow. and that came just from being contacted by one fan. You know, that that's, that's what amazing. that's what I find amazing about even today. I mean, so many people think we know everything about every artist. We know every recording. We know all their history. And yet 
every single artist, something will seems to pop up every week. Like somebody discovered and somebody not in the business, like, yeah, you know, my uncle passed away and we were going through his basement storage locker and I found this folder and what is this? And it's just, like you said, it's a nugget of information that can change everything that nobody knew about or it's the missing link between certain events in a band's history that now confirms or denies what that still exists out there. Stuff yeah. is still coming out from storage lockers, basements, garage sales, you name it. People are finding this stuff. And I, I find that really exciting. Like we don't know. It's always going to be new. It's life affirming for me because that's my goal is to be a preservationist and to be and and I'm a student. I'm I'm just learning alongside everybody else. I don't claim to be the final word on anything. I want to learn and find out and hear as much as I can of all this stuff. And it's still occurring every day, every day. My life is immersed in music and I'm grateful that I can still do it. And I'm grateful that stuff like that is it it gives me it's like you want to wake up the next day because like what weird Beatles thing is going to show up? Some photo of them from the what's, cavern club that we've never seen. Yep. What's right. going to be in your what's in your inbox tomorrow morning? It, it's like Christmas. It's like, oh, I don't know what it's going to be in the inbox, but there could be a, that email that just changes everything for this artist. Exactly. Exactly. And that's if you if you love music the way I do, and I think you guys do, yeah. then that's everything. Yeah, that's yep. that's yep. that's that's the exciting part. Andrew, where, where can people learn more, not about just about the kink set and the, the new monkey set and stuff, but just about you and all of your work? Where, what's the best place for people to kind of reach out to you and learn more about you? Well, I've got a weekly radio show on uh, WFMU's Rock and Soul uh, Radio, which is a, a stream that WFMU is a very old, venerable uh, community stations had for years and years. And uh, that's Come to the Sunshine. That's been going on 16 years. So I've got wow, Come congratulations. to the where I cover a lot of 60s music. Um, that's my specialty. Um, also, I segued from being a reissue producer into being a concert tour producer because, you know, I have to eat and pay rent and and all and buy that. So um, for the last 10, 11 years, I've did produced the Monkees concert tours and done some British Invasion ones. I have a tour coming up in April that I'm putting together for Mickey Dolan's uh, tickets go on sale uh now probably when you're seeing this so yeah. um, he'll be in the northeast and the south and midwest um performing a lot of stuff off the monkey's headquarters album which is also a box set on rhino direct yeah. consumer uh limited edition so grab them now before you have to grab them on ebay or discogs okay a andrew final question and 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 this is kind of an inside joke but let's just let's let's kill this rumor that fans think all bands were like the monkeys and lived in a house together all the time. Is that true? <laughs> well, certainly not. And and having having lived on the road with a number of members of the monkeys, I mean, you know, them they would save it up to be on stage together. And they would be friendly for meals and, and getting on stage, but it's like they really liked having their private time away from each other. And and I I found that with almost all artists you know, living in each other's uh, pockets. I mean, touring is what breaks up a lot of artists. It's usually yeah. not, uh, you know, or starting a record too soon after you've done a tour or, or whatever. You know, we've looked at all these these things and um, over the years we've all studied artists. And yeah, living together is usually that's where you That's not go. real. That's not real. Band, no. Bands don't have a band house 
you know, you two's not all living in a giant condo together. But I saw the movie Help. The Beatles were all living together in the house. <laughs> that's before, you know, that's before people learned that you could just have girlfriends and boyfriends. You sleep on their couches. Ah, and, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. All right. Andrew, this Andrew, was an awesome discussion. So great talking with you, man. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank, thank you for bringing us inside the vault. <laughs> Visit DiscMakers.com to place an order for 100 or more CDs. And when you check out, use promo code FREEBIZ and get free shipping up to a 100. What a great conversation. I mean, you know, yeah. like you, I'm all about the behind the scenes. And, yeah. you know, we've always heard the, oh, it's in the vault. It's in the vault. And <laughs> to talk to somebody who really knows what the vault is and what's yeah. in the vault and, and, you know, it is really great to have somebody take you into that process of yeah. digging through archives and putting together reissues and anthologies yeah. and the, and what the problems are that you encounter. It's, you know, contrary to fans belief, it's not just as easy as, you know, opening up your, your storage locker and pulling this tape out, take the track yeah. off. Of. People don't know where a lot of this stuff even exists. That's They're exactly right. No idea. Yeah. And I loved seeing, just like you, I love seeing how the sausage is made. When I worked at Universal, I got to go into the vault. I got to see some of these things that he's talking about. And what struck me is that there are things that they don't know they have. Like we were we were searching for one artist and we found some things that weren't on the list, but they were there with all of the tapes. And then there are things that happen, you know, when one of our record companies went out of business, um, people were walking away with masters. And, you know, you don't know where all of this stuff well, is. And it's, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, my story similar to that is, you know, a number of years ago, I was, I was helping out a team that was working to reopen the Sausalito record plant, which is just near me. And we opened up this dingy closet and it was stacked with two inch master tapes in there and cassette tapes. And, and, you know, I'm looking through this stuff and there was, you know, there was there was Metallica radio interviews. There was uh, two inch masters from Neil Sean. I mean, it had been sitting there for decades, yeah. unprotected, yeah. not controlled environment, just mm -hmm. sitting on the floor. And whoever paid for these recordings never asked to get them back. And, you know, you got to think of all the recording studios around the world, how much stuff is still sitting in some studios, yeah. literally, you know, broom closet mm -hmm. that they forgot about that could be that ultimate rare outtake that was only recorded once and never used, never listened to again. That stuff is still out there. And, and it's just amazing how. Every once in a while, there is that, oh, my God, we opened up some artist's basement filled with tapes. Yeah. It happens every year. You Things are discovered. Yeah. 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 Great, yeah. great conversation. Yeah. yeah. So um, let's continue this conversation over on uh, the Bands in Town artist community. Head over to bandsintown.musicbizweeklypodcast.com. Let's continue talking about this. Have you ever experienced any of this on your own have you worked on a project where you were having to quote dig into the vaults look for archive material um do you have any interesting stories that you you've dealt with finding material i mean it's 
again, it's like it's like it's like finding that golden nugget. It's just you just like how is this sitting here and nobody knew about it? It's worth yeah. it could be worth hundreds if not millions of dollars. Um. All right, just a quick shout out and thank you to Bruce and everybody at Hypebot and Bands in Town for all your support. Appreciate and of it. course, to our sponsors, bandzoogle.com and discmakers.com. Thank you so much. Um, Jay, that's it. We will be back next week. And industry professionals listen to the Music Biz Weekly podcast. If you have a product or service and would like to reach this audience, Get in touch with Michael or Jay to discuss sponsorship this opportunities. For Music Biz Weekly, provided by LarryDavisVoice.com and by JessicaMarsVoice.com. That's Mars with a Z.